Good morning. Let's go ahead and have a seat. Um, so I am a card-carrying millennial. I'm 38 years old, I'll be 39 in July, which means that I started to become part of the voting world around the end of George W. Bush's second term, okay? So I'm starting to follow politics, I'm about ready to vote, so I'm, you know, I'm following things a little bit more, I'm listening to the news and stuff like that, and uh, so go back with me to about 2007. So 2007, you've had two Republican presidents in a row, well, two terms of the same Republican president in a row, and for many uh, liberal-leaning people in the country, there was this feeling that, you know, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Then around 2007, there was this man that emerged from relative obscurity, and he was young, he was well-dressed, he was intelligent, he was well-educated, he was a good speaker, he was not white, and he emerged on the scene, and of course I'm talking about Barack Obama. And when Barack Obama, he made a, I forget exactly what it was, he made some speech, and as soon as he made this speech, people were just like, this is our hero. And the way liberal-leaning, people who are liberal-leaning politically throughout the country just flocked to him. Like, just flocked to him. This guy could do no wrong. Like, finally, we have somebody who's going to fix what's wrong with America. And if you remember Barack Obama, do you guys remember that poster that he had? There are lots of posters. There's one that stands out to me. It was like, a, it, was, it was kind of impressionistic. It was like red and blue and white, and he was kind of like looking, looking off to, to, the, to the horizon like that. You guys remember this one? And, you know, Barack Obama, he, when he came, he didn't just say, hey, you know, I've got some really good ideas. I, th I think we need to change a few laws. You know, the country's pretty good, but, you know, I, I really think that I've got a few ideas I think could help us. No, he didn't promise that. He promised hope. And so I remember seeing those posters all over Facebook, all over the internet, Barack Obama with this kind of thousand-yard hero stare It says, hope. And around this time, so all of the more conservative-leaning people in the country are just kind of looking by and they're like, look at these idiots. Look at them treating this guy like he's second coming of George Washington or something like that. It's, he's just a person. Why are we getting so excited? And, you know, so Obama, two terms. Changed some things, didn't change some things. I don't know, you could say the, that the world was tons better or tons worse when he left than when he came. And then, in 2016, when the Republicans and the conservatives were feeling that they didn't know what was next, there was a man who emerged 
from the obscurity of reality TV shows, and he did not take anything from anybody. And conservatives said, finally, we have somebody who's going to stand up and bully the bullies. And he fought for conservatives. And seeing the way people who hadn't been a part of politics, hadn't been interested in politics for years, just flocked to Donald Trump. And similar to Obama, he didn't just say, hey, you know what? There's a few things to fix. I've got a few ideas for policy that I think could really help improve this country. What did he promise us? He He promised us greatness. I'm going to make you great again. And I don't remember cool posters, but he had those hats, the hat that brought down Kanye West. (laughs) Right? And people just flocked to him. And so this was kind of my, for the past, you know, 15 or so years, my sort of political consciousness. This is what I'm seeing. And you know what I took away? You You know what conclusion I drew from watching Obama kind of come and go and then Trump come and go and maybe come back, and I'm not sure, let's not talk about that. Um, here's what I picked up. As human beings, and I think especially as Americans, there is a part of us that is just itching, that is just longing for a hero. There's something inside of us that has this sense of, I know something's wrong with the world. But we have this hope that one day there's going to be a, a man who's going to come, that's going to be the hero, who's going to defeat the bad guys, and who's going to fix the world. The issue is, we are often looking for that hero in the wrong place. And today what we're talking about today, we're going, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. You can go ahead and turn there with me. So... We have this craving for a hero that's just embedded in our DNA. And so that's why, you know, whenever there's a politician that can walk and chew gum at the same time, that kind of believes what we believe and thinks what we think, people are just so eager to be like, this is our hero. And what we're looking at today is that the reason that we have that instinct, that often we kind of point at the wrong people and point in the wrong direction, but the reason we have that instinct is because the story that we actually are living in, the story that you are living in, not a story that's made up, but the true drama of the world that we live in, is the story of a hero. It's a story of a hero who comes to defeat his enemies and to rescue his people. So here's what we're talking about today. We're going to talk about our problem. What is it that we need to be saved from? And then second of all, we're going to talk about our hero, who, as we've been building for several weeks already, the Bible refers to as the snake crusher, the one who is going to show up and who's going to save us and who's going to fix our problems. So look with me at uh, at Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to start in in verse 14 in a second. So... But let me review real quick and go ahead and go to the next slide. I've got this, uh, this handy-dandy drawing for you. Is it up there yet? Okay, so here's kind of where we've been. Yeah, so uh, we've been talking about Genesis, our, our series we're calling Snake Crusher Wanted. 
And so what we've seen so far is that God creates a world, and he creates a good world. It's a world that's good, that's beautiful, that's full of just wonderful things. And he creates us as human beings, as man and woman, to be his image bearers, to be kings and queens that are ruling over his creation according to his will. That's what we're created for. And we're created to do that not just by being pastors and missionaries, but he gives us the privilege of working by being engineers, by being designers, by being business people, by being healthcare professionals, to continue to cultivate and expand and, de and develop his creation. Okay? But then we saw that because humanity wasn't content to be like God in the sense that they were his image bearers ruling his creation according to his will. Instead, they wanted to be like God in the sense that they wanted to be appear to God. They wanted to be on the same level as God. They wanted to be gods themselves and start defining good and evil for themselves. And so then we saw the snake, the snake that comes and who whispers lies and deceives them and then Adam and Eve, they make that choice to not trust God, but instead take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when that happened, what, human, what humanity was doing was we were turning our back on God. We're rebelling against God. We're saying to God, God, we don't want to let you define good and evil for us. Instead, we're going to want to define good and evil for our own lives. And what happened, you can see in this diagram that I have there, what happened when we rebelled against God is that our relationship with God was broken. Our relationship with God was broken. We're separated from God. And when our relationship with God was broken, that caused our relationship with God's creation to be broken. So in the past few weeks, we said two of the most precious gifts that God has given us are, number one, family, intimacy, companionship, and second of all, the ability to work and to do meaningful things in God's creation. And so what we see is that when our relationship with God, our vertical relationship with God is broken, it caused at the same time our horizontal relationship with family and also with our, with our work is, is full of pain. It's this wonderful, beautiful, awesome gift of God. But because our relationship with the life giver, with our, with our God, has been broken, all of these good gifts, these things that are supposed to be just pure pleasure and enjoyment, are laced with pain. They're full of pain. Okay, so we're going to see that. First of all, look with me in verse 14, what it says about, well, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to start actually in verse 16, and then we're going to talk about uh, the pain that we experience in family. Then we're going to talk about the pain we experience in work, and then we're going to circle back around to verse 14 and talk about our hero, okay? So look with me in verse 16. At this point, Adam and Eve, they've committed the sin. They've been found guilty before God. They've been convicted. And this is kind of like the courtroom scene where God is coming to pronounce the sentence. Because of what you've done, this is what your punishment is going to be. And this is what he says in verse 16. He talks about pain in family. So he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desires shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay, well here's what, what he's saying here. One of the most unbelievable gifts in life 
is the ability that women have to produce and to carry and to create life. It's one of the most spectacular things in the world. And the word that's used here where he says, I will multiply your pain in childbearing, it's not actually the word that's talking about the birthing process. It's the word for conception or pregnancy. Okay, so he's saying, I will multiply your pain in, in the process of becoming and being pregnant. So think about this. Think about how wonderful pregnancy could be in a world without sin, in a world without pain. I mean, you, you have, through intimate relationship with the person that you're closest to, then the woman realizes that she has a life that's growing inside of her, and then starts to, belly starts to grow, and you feel that child kick for the first time. You, you feel it kind of, you see the poking out of the tummy and, and stuff like that, and you can, you can feel this human being that's, that's living inside of you. That could be the most wonderful, beautiful experience possible. But is that the experience that we have? It's not. This beautiful thing that God's given us, we know it's still good, but it's full of pain. There's many people that would like to be pregnant that can't get pregnant. People that would like to be married that, that, that aren't married. And there's morning sickness. There's, there's all different types of, of pain that comes with this, that, that's laced into this beautiful gift that God's given us because of sin that's in the world. And look at the second thing that he says. He says, in pain you will bring forth children. And this is, this is the word for the actual um, birthing room, what happens in the birthing room. And again, think about this. That could be, the, that's like the, the most beautiful day of your life when your child comes in the world, into the world. But it's also, for the woman, it's also the greatest pain that anybody could ever experience. So we have beauty and joy and pain just woven together together like that. But that's not all that he says. He says, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. This is not talking about a woman's sexual desire for her husband. This word desire, in the next chapter, we hear the story of Cain and Abel. And God tells Cain, he says, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Okay? Doesn't mean he wants to take you out on a date. Means he wants, he's like a tiger that's going to come and devour you. This is like attacking type of language. It's desire, or your desire shall be contrary to or for your husband, but he will rule over you. And then this is not talking about male headship being bad. This is talking about the man being domineering and controlling and manipulative and, and ruling with an iron fist, so to speak. So again, this most beautiful relationship that God has given us, that just a few verses before, you had Adam and Eve, they're naked and unashamed, just not hiding anything, Adam singing songs about how good Eve looks, right? It, it was so good. And now God is saying that this relationship 
that was designed to be so good is still really good. But it's characterized with lots of pain and suffering. Okay? So because our relationship with God has been broken through sin, we, we experience pain in our family. But not only that, we also experience pain in our work. Look at what God says to Adam in verse 17. So he, he's coming through and he's, he's pronouncing this judgment. What are, what's the punishment? What's the consequence going to be for their sin? This is what he says to Adam. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten from the fruit of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So a few verses earlier... In the description of the Garden of Eden, it says that the Lord caused out of the ground to spring up every type of tree, every type of tree that is beautiful to look at and is delicious to taste. How hard did Adam have to work to provide food for his family in the garden? He had to work about this hard. That was what work looked like. And the rest of it was fun. He could get to garden and cultivate and till the ground and, and make stuff look better and better. But it was fun. And he had this abundance of beautiful fruit to eat all the time. But what's it like now? He says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So in a, a second ago he said, in the Garden of Eden... He didn't even have to plant. There's just like these beautiful mango and peach and apple trees just, just sprouting up out of the ground and, and bearing the fruit. And all you have to do is take it. But now he's saying, you're going to work the ground. You're going to sow. You're going to plow. You're going to water. You're going to harvest. And what are you going to get? Sometimes you're just going to get thorns and thistles. Now, Adam's job was to be the gardener of the Garden of Eden, to till the ground and to work the ground. But because of sin in the world, you experience pain in your place of work, too. How many times have you worked really, really hard at something, and through no fault of your own, it just didn't have the result that you wanted. It's like you're planting an apple tree, and all that comes up is thorns and weeds. Have you had that experience before? How many of you have been in a meeting where you just kind of go around and around and around and around and around in circles and waste a lot of everybody's time, and you're trying to solve this problem, and at the end of the meeting, you're no closer to solving the problem than when you started? That's frustrating, right? It's thorns and thistles. That we, we work and we work and we work, and sometimes the result that we've worked for just doesn't come. 
maybe we start a business. And then COVID comes and business is going fine, but then because of the pandemic, we lose our business. It comes to nothing. Thorns and thistles. And look what else it says. Not only is it going to be frustrating to work because work doesn't always yield the result we want, it's also painful to show eat because work itself is really hard. It says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till, until you return to the dust. Okay, so before this, it was delightful work in the garden. Picking the fruit, trimming the flowers, you know, planting a, a bed of something. And now by the sweat of your brow, you're going to toil. And at the end, you're not going to have delicious mangoes and watermelon and things like that, you're going to have just bread, right? How many of you experience this in your life, in your work, where work itself just becomes stressful, where the work itself, you get that email and there's just like a knot in your stomach, right? I've talked to so many of you and I've experienced this myself where it's just like the, the burden of work is always on your shoulders, it's like you always have more to do than you can do in a given week. You always have more to do than you can do in a given day. You're constantly trying to keep up. You're constantly trying to catch up. And, and it's, you're just full of worry about it. It's painful. By the sweat of your brow, will you be willing, will you be able to eat bread? Okay, so because of our broken relationship with God, this beautiful gift of family is now full of pain, and also this beautiful gift of work also becomes full of pain. And then in verse 20 through 24, God, he expels them from the garden. He says in verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So we're cut off from God. Work is full of pain. Family is full of pain. And eventually, just like a computer that's unplugged from its power source, eventually, we're going to die. Okay, so, so this is our problem. What is the... What's the way that we should respond to pain that we experience in the world? Again, if we're going to live well in this world as disciples of Jesus, we're going to experience pain. And maybe right now, you're experiencing some acute pain because of family. Maybe it's related to wanting to get pregnant or have a baby, or maybe it's just difficulty raising kids. Maybe it's you have estranged relationships or very difficult relationships with certain family members. Or maybe you're experiencing pain in work, where you're just not getting the results that you desire, or your efforts are being frustrated somehow. As disciples of Jesus, if we're going to live well in this world, we have to know what to do when there's pain. And because we live in a sinful world that's full of pain, we need to learn to grieve. We need to learn to grieve. You know, in America, we don't really like to grieve. As Westerners, we don't really like to grieve very much. We like to, you know, just eat more food or watch more TV or, or drink more or, 
um, you know, just numb ourselves with entertainment of some sort, or we like to pretend that we're okay, or just kind of work ourselves so we're not paying attention to it. But if we're going to live well in God's world, we're going to need to learn how to grieve. Grieving basically just means recognizing that you're going through something painful and just not treating it. Just sitting in it, not trying to deny it, not trying to ignore it, not trying to suppress it, but just allowing yourself to feel that hurt when there's pain. Now, I've talked about this before, this idea of, of breathing out the pain and then breathing in God's presence and comfort with you. And so when we're feeling pain in the world, just like Jesus did, he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We need to not try to suppress it, but instead recognize this is always going to be a part of our life as long as as long as it is until the hero comes, and breathe out. Tell God how you're feeling, what's wrong, what's hurting, what you're frustrated about, and then, and then breathe in. Remember God's promises that he's with you, that he loves you, that he supports you, that he's there to comfort you, that you're not alone. So that's the first thing we're going to have to learn to do. Because of our problem, which is sin that leads to pain in the world, we're going to have to learn how to grieve. The second thing we're going to look at is our problem is sin, but our hero is the snake crusher. Look with me back at verse 14. You know, we've called this series the snake crusher wanted, and I know for some of you that sounds like a weird title. This is where that name comes from. You see, the true villain in the story, Adam and Eve, they are punished because of their sin. But the true villain in the story is not Adam and Eve. It's who? It's the snake. And so now we're going to see what God says to the snake. In verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all of the days of your life. Okay, this is talking about more than just the fact that snakes don't have legs. You know, some people say, oh, snakes used to have legs, and then God took them away, and now they're on the ground. That's not what this is talking about here. In the ancient world about that time, the idea of eating the dust or licking the dust was the idea of being defeated. Okay, you can read in some of the prophets, when certain kings are defeated, it says, God made them to lick the dust. Kind of like how we even say today, if we're in a race and I'm winning, I'm like, oh, eat my dust. Right? So when he's saying, you will eat the dust, he's saying, you're not going to win forever. You're going to be defeated one day. Well, how are you going to be defeated? Look at what he says in the rest of verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So he's saying, this time you got the best of humanity. You deceived them. But I'm going to put enmity. I'm going to put conflict between you and one of the future offspring of the woman. And he says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise 
his heel. This word bruise, we think of bruise like, you know, ow, I stubbed my toe, I have a bruise on my toe. This is not a word that means a little scrape. This is a word that means to attack, to strike. This is not stubbing your toe. This is like a, a Mike Tyson uppercut right on the jaw, right? This is being, this is being crushed. And so what he says here, there's going to be conflict between you and one of the offspring of the woman. And he is going to one day, he's going to, he's going to crush your head. Now he's going to suffer too. You're going to crush his heel. You will wound him, but he's going to deal you the death blow by crushing your head. So then the question becomes, and this is really the rest of the story of the book of Genesis, who's the snake crusher going to be? Genesis 3.15 is like this giant neon flashing sign that says, snake crusher wanted. We're in this predicament. The world is full of pain. Who's the man who's going to come that's going to crush the snake and is going to fix God's broken world. So you start asking, well, who's it going to be? Who's the snake crusher going to be? Well, about 1,500 years later, you can flip over with me if you want to. I'm just going to read these for you. 1,500 years later, during the life of Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples named John He's writing back, reflecting on what Jesus did, coming to the earth, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, and then rising again from the dead. This is what he says in 1 John 3, 8. Think about this. Again, as we're, this question that Genesis 3.15 has put in our minds, that you're supposed to read the whole rest of the book of Genesis and the whole rest of the Bible asking this question. Who's the snake crusher going to be? When will he come? In 1 John 3, 8, it says, John says, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. Why did Jesus come? Why did he come? He came to destroy the work of the devil. What is the work of the devil? The work of the devil is not just haunted houses and bad dreams. What's the work of the devil? The work of the devil is that he was the one, the snake, the serpent, who deceived Adam and Eve to turning their back about against God and sinning against God and rebelling against God. The work of the snake, the work of the serpent, the work of the devil is causing our relationship with God to be broken so that now we're experiencing pain all throughout God's good creation. And he says, the reason the Son of God, the reason Jesus came, was to destroy the work of the devil. In other words, why did Jesus come? He came to be the one who would see Satan, who's wreaking havoc in the world, and say, and crush his head, and crush the snake. Romans 16 
Romans chapter 16, the book of Romans is this beautiful, masterful letter that one of Jesus' disciples named Paul wrote. And it's probably the clearest picture, the clearest explanation of the gospel, of faith, of sin, of God's grace, of forgiveness, of righteousness, salvation. At the end of the book of Romans, as Paul's written this masterpiece explaining to us the gospel, how we can be saved, in like the last paragraph of the book of Romans, in Romans 16, verse 20, this is what he says. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What is he saying? He's saying, the snake crusher has already come. And he's dealt a death blow to the head of the snake. And so the snake's already dying, but one day he's going to be dead and gone for good. And pain will not be a part of the world anymore. One day he's going to come and put his foot on the head of the snake and crush him. And restore this world to the way it was meant to be. I don't know if you noticed this before, but when Jesus sends out, in Luke chapter 10, when he sends out 72 of his disciples and tells them to go preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, talk about the kingdom of God. And they come back. The 72 come back and they're excited. You remember what they're excited about? They're excited because they were able to cast out demons. And this is what Jesus says in response to them. They're like, wow, even the demons did what we said. In Luke 10, 18 and 19, this is what it says. It says, the 72 returned with joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. What's he talking about? He's not talking about snake handling. What he's saying is that Jesus has come to defeat God's enemy, to crush the head of the snake, and when we put our faith in him, he puts his Holy Spirit inside of us, and so the Holy Spirit working through us can crush the work of Satan in our lives and in the lives of everybody in the world, while we wait for him to come and crush the snake for good. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So who's the snake crusher? Who's the snake crusher? Um, you know, I, I started by talking about, about Obama and Trump. And, um, you know, I think there's kind of like a, I think that sometimes we, having been through kind of the rigmarole of American politics for the past, I don't know, however many years, we can just become cynical. And for some people, and like I said, I'm, I'm a millennial, and I think a lot of millennials are this way, 
you know, we don't, it's not that we're looking at Trump or we're looking at so-and-so and being like, oh, our hero. We just kind of become cynical. We kind of become cynical and think, there's never going to be a hero who's going to walk through the door that can fix our problems, so let's just stop waiting for him. And Genesis 3.15 is a huge neon flashing reminder that there is. And we should fully put our hope in him. Jesus, the one who's crushed the snake and one day is going to come back to crush the snake once and for all. And so we're about to enter into an election cycle. Anybody aware of that? So 2024 is coming. And before soon, before long, we're going to soon, soon see posters and advertisements and radio ads and podcast ads and YouTube ads and all type, basically all the campaign is, is people spending millions and millions and maybe even billions of dollars trying to convince you that Trump is the snake crusher or Michelle Obama is the snake crusher or Ron DeSantis is the snake crusher or I don't think anybody really, really thinks Joe Biden's the snake crusher, but whoever is the snake crusher, right? That's basically all that it is. This is the snake crusher. AOC is the snake crusher. They've come to save us, right? And so we need to be, first of all, we need to be hopeful as we grieve and experience pain in our lives. Let's grieve that pain and use that as a reminder that one day the snake crusher is coming and he's going to fix this. And let's also be hoping for him to come back soon. Be putting our hope completely in him. And maybe you vote for this politician or that politician, or you agree with this person or that person, and that's great. But that person's not your snake crusher. Because only Jesus is the one who can come and crush the snake. So let's grieve when we experience pain but let's not grieve as people who don't have hope. Let's put our hope fully in what Jesus is doing, what he's done for us, crushing the snake on the cross, how he's crushing the snake today through his Holy Spirit within you and me, and most importantly, how he's going to crush the snake once and for all when he comes back in the future. Lord Jesus, we praise you. You're a king. You're our God. You're our hero. We want to put all of our faith and all of our hope and all of our trust in you. Jesus, we are so quick to find heroes and politicians or self-help gurus or other people that we admire. And God, we know that only through your spirit, only through you, can we truly have victory over what's wrong with the world and can we finally see this world fixed and restored to how it was meant to be? So God, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to live with you every day. And we ask that you continue to work in us and through us to spread your kingdom in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.